welcome to episode 53 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. On Wednesday, the 27th of October, Richard Eyre's time on a production of Verdi's La Traviata opened at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden. The story, of course, is based on the tragic story of the consumptive courtesan Violetta in Alexandre Dumas's 19th century novel La Dame aux Camélias. Verdi's beautiful score contains some of his most inspired arias and duets, including Violetta's joy sempre libera and her poignant and passionate encounters with Alfredo and Germont, culminating in the heartbreaking final act. A traviata, you'll be delighted to know, runs until the 18th of April next year. And six sopranos are going to play the role of Violetta. One of these is Anush Hovanissian, who made her name as one of the brightest young sopranos of her generation after her debut playing Violetta with the Scottish Opera. Well, as well as the Royal Opera House and Scottish Opera, Anoush has sung with the Welsh National Opera, Opera North, Philharmonia Orchestra, Opera Holland Park, Opera Rara and BBC Proms. She started her career in 2013 as a member of the Jetty Parker Young Artist Programme, performing extensively at the Royal Opera House over the next two years. In 2017, she represented Armenia at BBC Cardiff Singers of the World, broadcast to millions worldwide. She's won several awards, including the Deutsche Grammophon Award and a Royal Danish Opera Special Award at the 2016 Stella Maris competition. In 2018, she was nominated for the International Opera Award and in 2020 was named by the Times as the face to watch in opera. A stellar career to date and we're delighted that Anoush is on our podcast to tell us all about playing Violetta. Good afternoon, Anoush. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. So much fun to talk about the hard work that we are doing at the moment at the Royal Opera House to present this incredible opera yet again this is you know this is the 20 i think seventh year of revivals for the same production by richard Eyre. and this is such a privilege for me to be a part of this this is an iconic production that opened with Georg Scholti in 1994 starring angela georgiou and actually making her career her name as the divina that she is. So, you know, it's a, such a wonderful place for me to be. This is my home. Royal Opera House has given birth to my career. It was the place when I've learned to do a lot of stuff that are very important for a modern career. And I've been always in and out of the house, and now I'm finally back to be the leading lady. Hooray, hooray. This is uh, fantastic. I mean, it has been going 27 years. and In fact, it is the most performed opera in the world. And I think it was first staged in London in... 1858. So it's been around a while. What is going to be different about, apart from your brilliance as the lead, are there going to be any tweaks and twists to the latest production just to buff it up a bit for 2021 as opposed to 1994? Oh, absolutely. You know, the the genius of Richard is uh, in having created this brilliant production that really allows um, every new artist who is coming to be to bring their own ideas. It says it gives you the framework of 1994, but then every artist brings their own interpretation. And of course, every time we revive the production, the revival director really revives it around the artist they have. So uh, it this is not going to be the Traviata that you've seen in 2003 or 2016. This is going to be the Traviata that is very much related to the six leading ladies this year. 
And what fun to be one of the six wonderful names. I mean, come on, Lisette Oropesa, Christina Mkhitaryan, Priti Yende, Rachi Bassens, and myself, and Angel Blue. I, my, my, my dear Angel Blue, she, she's so wonderful. These are people who are actually out there making, pushing the limits of the art form, making very many people very happy with their entertainment and their talent. And it's a, it's a great privilege to be one of them. I'm, you know, I don't know whether you're, you know this feeling, there is the simultaneous joy of having to do this and an absolute petrified, uh, you know, little girl that finds herself on the stage to be doing this big adult grown up thing suddenly. So I'm, I'm trying to, you know, my, my life is at the moment balancing between my, my, my fears, <laughs> stage fears and just general life fears going on as the leading lady and and the joy of, of bringing this opera i think we all we, we all suffer from that i suffer from it the minute i get out of the house and you know the idea of me performing with charlotte on a podcast is uh, <laughs> terrifying <laughs> but i want I, I, I just wondered when you named all these wonderful leading ladies who are your peers as it were presumably you never see each other because you're all living out of suitcases and post-covid we hope you know resuming your global Globe trotting. Do you are you ever in the same city at the same time? Would it, what would it take to get the six of you together at an <laughs> at an amazing performance? Probably never, never. You will get that. Never ever, uh, because all of us are almost the same voice type. So if 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 there is a production or a concert, they would they would have one or two of us maximum. Like okay, three of us. Do you remember uh, like the three tenors? We need to get you yeah. all together in Hyde Park. <laughs> The six sopranos. Imagine that'd be so much fun. Oh well, you heard it here first. (laughs) Let's let's become let's become impresarios, Charlotte. I think so. He used to do the ones at Albert in the Albert Hall. Oh yes, Um, raising the roof. Raymond Gubby, we need to be the Raymond. We need to get the six sopranos (laughs) concert for hundred thousand hundred thousand people at Wembley Stadium. I am loving this so much. I'm there. Yes, I'm committed to it See, already. We've got our first one already. We're, we're, we're naturals at this, Charlotte. Anyway, I'm digressing because I know Charlotte wants to talk about Armenia. Yeah, I'm very oh. excited. Now, 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 you're Armenian. The clue is obviously in your surname ending with an. Um, now, my late mother-in-law is Armenian, so my daughters have Armenian heritage. And I'm really interested to know a bit about your background in Armenia and whether there's a great tradition of opera there. Funnily enough, I have to say that this season... The Royal Opera House has four Armenians, five, five Armenians performing with the company. No. So in Traviata only. No way. Yes, in Traviata only, you've got four Armenians. So Alfredo Libari Davetisian, who is opening tonight with the most wonderful, incredible, sensational Lizette Oropesa. Uh, he's also my Alfredo. The other cast includes Violetta, who is Kristina Mkhitaryan. Uh, a Russian of Armenian descent. And then later on in spring, we have Rachi Bassens, who is also coming to sing Violetta, and she's also Armenian. And then later on after that, we have Liana Harutunian singing Madame Butterfly. So, you know, it's an infestation of Armenians. And um, having in mind... Cons- what, is it, what, is it, what is in the water in Armenia? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's not only Armenia, the region, the, also Georgia. We have 
the regional voices are most sensational, really. There is something about it. It's either us being on highlands or maybe the sun or I don't know what it is, but we like singing. And Armenian and Georgian <laughs> singing traditions are very different to each other. I don't know if ever, you've ever been to Georgia and heard their polyphonic choral singing. It's something to, to blow your mind away. But uh, the voices that are coming from that region are very distinct. And um, you can always recognize that the timbre, it, it has a very specific color to it. Um, I grew up in Armenia. I was born and raised there. Armenia has only less than three million people living in the country, which is maybe my my borough in London or half of my borough in London. <laughs> um, I studied at the State Conservatory and then I came to, uh, to continue my education in Scotland. I've graduated from the Royal Conservatory of Scotland. Then after graduation, I came down straight to London to be a member of the Yeti Parker Young Artist Programme at the Royal Opera House. And since then, I was based in London and uh, started my international career from here. How absolutely amazing. But don't you miss Armenia? How often do you get to go back there? Oh, I try to go quite often but it's not always the case because I'm very busy obviously my my work takes me as Ed said you know I live out of my suitcase I I say I'm based in London but pre-COVID I really hardly remember any year that I've spent six months in London I was always on the road um not always possible to go back but my parents all still live there um I, tr I try to go back from time to time whenever it is possible come with me come come be my guests I, I really, really want to. Okay, I, we're, we're signed up for that. We're, we're signed up. Have your it's parents been, been... Absolutely wonderful. What are you, you want to ask another question? No, I'm just, I just wondering if your parents have flown over and, and seen you or if they've got plans to. Well, my parents came here for my debut in 2013 and, I, and they, they've seen me singing Frasquita in uh, then Francesco Zambello's Carmen. And this next year, I'm, I'm uh, just after this Traviata, the run of Traviata at the Royal Prowse, I'm leaving to Israel, leaving for Israel to sing another run of Traviatas in Tel Aviv. So my parents are coming there to see me there. Oh, brilliant. Oh, let's go to Tel Aviv. That'll be fun. Yeah, come to Tel Aviv. Love Tel we'll Aviv. We'll have so much fun yeah, there. Okay. So many Armenians there too. <laughs> Oh, we have got so much on our agenda now. Yeah, yes. six sopranos. Six sopranos. We've got the trip to Tel Aviv and the trip to Armenia. This is this is the most exhausting podcast I've ever. Had. <laughs> it's been absolutely lovely talking to you, Anish. But I've got to go and talk about woke uh, and the arms length principle to Leeds University. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. See you on stage. Big kiss. Bye. Big kiss. Thank you so much. Yesterday, that is if you're listening on Sunday, another literary festival opened in Petworth, a beautiful town in West Sussex that I confess to having a very soft spot for as my parents moved to a village nearby when I was 15. Petworth is absolutely gorgeous, a short drive or train journey from London, and the festival there is now in its 11th year. It runs for nine days until next Sunday, over five venues, so there's still plenty of time to get there, and there are going to be 38 events which will be streamed until the end of the month. And what Charlotte didn't tell you, of course, is that while her parents moved to Petworth, she stayed in London at the age of 15, which explains a hell of a lot. Anyway, there are a lot of very good literary festivals at this time of year, but this has really pulled in a great selection of historians, novelists and journalists from Sebastian Folks, Geoffrey Archer, Dan Jones, Alison Weir, Richard Dawkins and Joan Bakewell. So there are two members of the House of Lords there. Hint, hint. Geordie Gregg's talking about Lucian Freud. Hugo Vickers is talking about his wonderfully named book, Malice in Wonderland, about Cecil Beaton. It's all been curated 
and put together by Stuart Collins. And we're delighted to have him with us here today. Stuart. Very nice to be here. Well, Stuart, it's very good to have you with us. And last night I watched your YouTube video giving a half hour talk on what visitors could expect. And I have to say your enthusiasm is completely infectious. We'll get on to the highlights in a moment, but I'd love to start by hearing about Max Egremont's book on the Baltic states called The Glass Wall. Max Egremont is, of course, as you would put it, Stuart, one of Petworth's own, living in the stunningly beautiful Petworth Park in the heart of the town. But what I hadn't realised is quite how many books he's already written. So tell us a bit about him and his new book on the Baltics. I mean, you're absolutely right uh, to me when I first met Lord Egremont, of course, as, as uh, I was introduced to him, uh, Max now as the author of The, of the Glass Wall. But yes, uh, quite apart from being the most notable figure in our notable town of Petworth, living, as you say, in the wonderfully historic uh, Petworth house with all that that entails, and I believe his family goes back to the Doomsday Book. Uh, but uh, as you say, he is a published historian, uh, several several books on a variety of subjects and actually one of the most interesting and touching ones was his last was on the First World War Poets. But I think he's had a specific interest in the Baltic Republics, which of course is quite niche. But I suppose that's the joy of being a historian in a sense that every subject is niche in, in many ways and that you can literally dig out any corner in any country at any time and find some fascinating stories. And I think The Glass Wall is all about in in fact, those three incredibly troubled nations uh, in in the Baltics, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, uh, and. I think the thing that Max Egremont points out is the extraordinary contrast between the stability we've had in the UK, uh, in in Britain over many, many centuries, in comparison to the incredible turbulence that they've suffered uh, in that part of the world as borders have been changed, armies have invaded and so on and so forth. And so Max's book is very much detailing the very, very fascinating and difficult history that those three countries have had. I mean, obviously, you've got a huge range of different speakers. And obviously, I'm always interested in knowing how you go about curating them. I mean, you've got Jonathan Aitken, of course, talking about being a politician, a prisoner and a priest. But if you were to highlight very unfair question to ask the father of the literary festival but you know don't miss the events that made you the, the booking that made you jump out of your chair and say i've got him or her or this well yeah yeah i mean you're absolutely right the curatorial process is a fascinating one because you have various different benchmarks you clearly want to have an element of notoriety you clearly want to have a different range of subjects uh, you you really wants to have events that are all distance from each other so that people can come again and again and have a different experience. Uh, and so that that's the joy of curating. Obviously, I look through all the information that comes out of the publishers every year to see what will make the most fascinating list. But as you say, there are, there are times when you just rub your hands together in glee when you think you've landed someone who's really, really interesting or someone you've always wanted to meet. And that's the other thing. I mean, that's one of the luxuries being the curator of a festival that you get to meet the people who are quite often, you know, the people you've read or certainly your heroes. Um, I'm very, very glad indeed that um, we've got some of the historians we've got. That's always been my particular passion. People like Alison Weir, that was great. Dan Jones, I'm really, really keen to meet because I love these enthusiastic television historians, but also equally, to be honest, to be to be uh, greeting Joan Bakewell as someone who I've sort of revered throughout my life as one of the great, clever 
people. I love clever people in the public eye. And she's always one of being, being one of those people. So that was a, a real win-win. But the other two, of course, were Geoffrey Archer and Sebastian Fultz, of course, both of whom are multi-million sellers. And to have people like that at a book festival is, is clearly a result because people are bound to be interested just to meet them, let alone read their most recent book. You've got some really interesting things as well. Like um, y- you talked actually very movingly on the on your YouTube thing about Isabel Hardman's book, The Natural Health Service. On And Isabel Hardman, of course, is very well known an award-winning political journalist and an editor at The Spectator, who's been incredibly open about her mental health issues. Tell us a bit about that book, because it sounds absolutely fascinating. Yes, as you say, if you know Isabel Hardman, you will know her as, as the highly respected journalist uh, who digs down. I mean, her most recent book was uh, all about the fact that we get the politicians we deserve because of the, the structures and the system that uh, that we've built up over, over, the, over the years. And Ed will know all, all about that. But no, this this most interesting and recent book is, is called the, the Natural Health Service. And it's all about how she approached her mental health problems. Uh, People won't remember. In fact, I didn't realise that she'd disappeared from the public eye for a while. Uh, But it was because of mental health problems that she attributes her return to health through because of her in her own return to nature, her appreciation of the outdoors, her her exposure to the outdoors, her increased love and appreciation for, for, for everything that grows, everything that is, everything that's green, or the seasons. And so, and so it's a, a very, very reflective book by someone who's incredibly incis- incisive and insightful. And, I, you know, that was one of the reasons I chose that, because it's a very interesting person talking about something completely different and a subject that's so important at the moment. And um, the other one that caught uh, my eye was the chemical weapons expert Hamish de Bretton Gordon's book, Chemical Warrior. Tell us about that because obviously although we think it's something that's very far from our day-to-day existence we have those terrible poisonings in Salisbury which I think is covered in the book. Exactly right yes uh, I mean Hamish is clearly one of those remarkable people who has consistently put himself in the line of fire in the line of danger over an entire career I mean he started off as an army man in the tank regiment so you know that was sort of what he was expecting to do and in fact he had absolutely no scientific training whatsoever but through through the strange machinations of the army mechanism and then in the end his own fascination and passions for the subject he became an absolute expert on chemical biological radiological nuclear arms and literally has put himself in the line of danger on multiple occasions whether it be in Afghanistan whether it be in Syria and indeed uh, as you say in in Salisbury where he he was the expert who was called in to identify the whole the Novichok episode so it's it's a remarkable story and all the more remarkable because he himself discovered that he has a, an extreme condition it's a, a heart condition that can can actually kill him at any point if he suffers undue stress. And if you think about the amount of stress someone who puts themselves under as they approach a pile of of biological weapons, <laughs> the story is quite astonishing, yes. So do you have to read every book of every author who's going to speak at your festival? Well, I, I'm glad to say that you have so far questioned me about books I have read. <laughs> um, the, uh, as as uh, Charlotte said at the beginning, uh, that there are 38 events 
at this year's festival and obviously 38 at least books associated with it. I, I think I probably read about 20, but uh, I just don't have the time to read all of them. You've got to download Audible. That's the way to do it, isn't it? Yeah, so absolutely. when you go on the dog walk... I'm afraid I'm a little bit sort of uh, one-dimensional on this, that I do like a book. Uh, mm. I'm one of those people who regards my bookshelves as a trophy cabinet. I, I so I so agree with you. I mean, my wife is constantly trying to get me to get rid of my books, and I say, no, no, they are. Each book, literally every book on my shelf, I can tell you a story about. Even if I haven't read it, it might have been written by a friend or, or something like that. Just before you go, can you tell us a bit more? I'm really interested about um, Jonathan Aiken has he written an, a, a new book? Because you mentioned, you know, that he he's these the three P's: priest, politician, and prisoner. A very strange combination of parts of his life. Interesting new point. You pick that one up. It is not a book yet. Um, he he is someone who. I mean, sometimes at the the literary festival we have just talks for the sake of talks. I'm keen that it shouldn't always just be person stands up, talks about books, sits down, has questions asked. You know, there's the, we have a lot of discussions, we have some conversations, uh, different forms of presentation. But in the case of Mr. Aitken, we decided that he would be interesting just to come and talk and not to be plugging a book, but because he had such an interesting life story. Uh, he, he had been someone who'd who knows knows one of my colleagues on the board of the festival extremely well. And I say to all of them, you know, if there is someone really interesting who, who you think should just come and talk, let's let's invite them because let's not make it all about books, just make it about the spoken word perhaps as well. Oh, it sounds fantastic. Well, huge good luck with it. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week, but do please keep listening and don't forget to visit our website, which is, of course, countryandtownhouse.co.uk because our very special edition of Great British Brand Zero is now out. It launched on Tuesday the 26th ahead of COP26 and contains interviews with 26 CEOs of luxury brands from Harrods and Selfridges to Burberry and Mulberry. It's very encouraging to read how the luxury industry is stepping up to the plate to combat climate change and it's the first time anyone has collected 26 interviews like this. So do take a look. Now tell me what was the launch party like Charlotte because I couldn't make it. It was far too early in the morning. It was very early in the morning and it was a little bit chaotic but it was <laughs> it was it it went very well what, what's the new conduit club like it's fabulous it's absolutely wonderful it's in covent garden rather than where it was in mayfair off botley square but it's very similar the minute you're inside it's got exactly the same atmosphere and they were there and very welcoming the other hot news apart from your amazing great british brands zero is that next week we're going to introduce our new sponsor who is none other than your bank coots yes we're delighted to welcome our new sponsor coots the wealth manager and private bank and thank you to all our guests this week and we really look forward to welcoming our guests next week who'll be the choreographer matthew bourne and also the great man of letters a n wilson who's going to be talking about his wonderful book the king and the christmas tree see you all next week bye